You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Matt Carter, and I know that you know that because it says it right on the podcast. The podcast is called Break It Down, which is another silly thing to tell you because it says it right there at the artwork that you're looking at right now, which, by the way, is new. So at least it let me explain to you that I have new artwork. But even that, you obviously knew because you saw it and clicked on it. But what I'm trying to say is, don't you like my new artwork? Don't you like my podcast? Don't you like my show? I hope you do. You because I like it. I like it so much that I've been doing it four days a week, and I'm going to do that for the next couple of weeks too. And it's not because I'm crazy. It's just an experiment. But I have to tell you, I'm enjoying it so much because I feel so little pressure on these conversations. I'm even more comfortable, and I feel like we just get a lot out of it. It's more of a routine. It's more of a habit, and it becomes easier and easier and more and more fun kind of every day that I do it. So although I do feel a little exhausted and tired and it's hard to keep up with everything else in my life, this is the part that I'm really enjoying. Uh, If you didn't catch it, I just launched a Patreon campaign to make this show be something serious, something real, to create a real uh, community and environment that would kind of keep me doing it because I really like it. And we're already halfway to our first goal, which is paying Reva, uh, my producer. And so thank you for everybody that supported that already. I'm excited that we have a Slack group. So I hope the the, the whole thing gets really big, but we're still going to use Slack to communicate. So me and the other, all the patrons in there, we have a channel where we're just going to talk. Well, we have different channels in there, but we're going to talk about guests, what happened on the show, other things that would be fun to talk about. I hope to share articles and news and things that are stuff that people that are interested in the show would be interested in, which will in turn feed me and that I can learn from too. And I got a new website that has my new artwork on it. So if you want to check out that Patreon, and I would love it if you did, it would mean a lot to me to at least check it out and see what it's about. Go to breakitdownpod.com forward slash, no, just breakitdownpod.com. That's my website. Sorry. And then you can find the Patreon through there. So let me tell you that Emory has some tour dates out on emorymusic.com. All the way through June and July, you can see where we're playing and when. We've got some great shows, and the best news is those shows will be $10 a piece. We're not using a booking agent or promoter. We rented the rooms, and we will sell the tickets. And if there's money left over after we pay the expenses, then we'll get paid some. But it, even if not, it'll be fun. It'll be good. Uh, you'll like it, and we'll like what we're doing. So we want to see everybody at that. So check that out at uh, emorymusic.com. Also, Matt and Toby, my other band, is playing Thursday night in Seattle at Numos, and then we're flying to the East Coast, and we're going to do shows the first couple of weeks of May, uh, Nashville and east of there, up and down the coast with The Classic Crime. And those tickets are available at theclassiccrime.com, uh, who also, by the way, has a brand new record that releases this Friday. So it's a tremendous record I've heard. I don't know if you have or not, or heard some tracks from it, but congratulations and good luck to them. Uh, support them by the record. Buy tickets to see them play. Support the stuff you like. Uh, that's what I've got here. Other than I got a, you know who's going to be on the show tomorrow? Joey Sturgis. Joey Sturgis is a producer who's just done a tremendous amount of work, and he also has a company where he makes 
audio software and plugins that I think are terrific. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. And they sponsor this show. And I think it's stuff you'd like. And if you look at the website, joeysturgistones.com, you might see some stuff that you like and could use. And if so, Joey and I will give you 20% off if you use the podcast 20 promo code. So enter podcast 20, you get 20% off of that. Now, Finally, Broadcast Supply Worldwide sponsors this show too. And I'm very thankful to them because they're my favorite place to buy audio or broadcast or podcast gear, microphones, cables, all that kind of stuff. They outfit most of the major radio stations. They've been in broadcast for a long time. And now that podcasting has emerged, they're the people that understand it and know the most about it and will help you. They also have this good or better prices than anybody. And here's the kicker. Well, also... They're really cool because they like and support my show. So that's great too. And the kicker is you get 10% off anything in the podcast category uh, just by using my promo code DOWN, D-O-W-N. So that is where you should get your audio gear. I recommend it. In fact, I command it. All right. So on the show today is Steven who's also known as Edwan. I have a hard time not calling him Steven because I knew him as a 16-year-old kid named Steven. But he goes by Edwan professionally. He's a VR game developer. Uh, he's a designer, a video guy. He does creative stuff full-time, whatever floats his boat. And he's developed an, a VR game that we discussed last Monday uh, at length. But we didn't get into talking about all the other possible future applications of VR and gaming. And we talked about gaming, gamer culture and things that may come out of that, and I've highly enjoyed this conversation. It's one of my favorite types and areas of things to discuss, and it felt quite natural to me, and it was great to see Stephen and tell some old stories with him as well. Edwin, sorry. So I don't need to pre-tell you that much about the conversation because you're, you're about to listen to it. So I will stop talking and then play the music, and then I'll start talking again, but with somebody else. Okay, here we go. Thank you, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Let's make harder. Yeah. Where are you right now? It looks a lot better than wherever you were last week. <laughs> That's <It's> insulting. Like, <laughs> well, it was just bad lighting. It's fine. Do you look? Well, what you where you are right now looks really cool. Where is it? Uh, this is a friend of mine's house in Los Angeles, and it's really cool. Everyone here is a freaking gaming nerd, uh, so there's tons of like gaming peripheral everywhere. I see Totoro um, back there. Yeah, uh, this this specific room is the room they use for like streaming. There's a girl here who does like Twitch streaming and stuff. So they call it the VR room because there's lots of virtual reality that happens in here, actually. So is is gaming? Here's the thing about gaming. I don't understand it. Uh, I've avoided gaming since I was a kid <laughs> as much really? as possible because I mean. I'm not against it, and what I'm I'm kind of interested in game culture because it seems to be powerful and unified and progressive and smart and shaping. But in general, it seems like it takes so much time for, it it feels like nonfiction. Like I don't like it because it takes me out of learning and doing other things 
for those hours that I would have to commit to gaming, for instance. So it's not that they're not fun, but it seems like in the same way when I feel like I read nonfiction or fiction, I feel like nonfiction is better. And I know people have counter arguments to that, but just for me, that's the way I feel because I don't want to participate in it because I, I could be more productive of use of an hour reading a a book where I learn actual facts or doing something on the internet that isn't simply a trivial game. However, it's clear to me that gaming is very, very important and has some really, really strong culture, and especially as it merges into VR and beyond, it seems like something that really needs to be paid attention to, right? And certainly not something to just be to be made fun of. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely not the latter. Uh, I don't know. Games games are co complicated. That's that's how I would put it. Uh, there's so many different types of games, and they create their own rules and their own worlds that so much can be said about it. Uh, uh, but honestly, I feel the same as you lately. Uh, in fact, even in high school, I remember I went through a period where I just stopped playing video games completely for a couple years, uh, and I just... I just didn't want anything to do with it. I would just get too sucked in and, and too lost, and I didn't feel like it was productive for my life. Um, but I do think there was a time before that where games were really uh, an incredibly powerful thing for me. They were almost like therapy in a way, you know, uh, an escape from the world, but I was learning a lot through the games. Um, and I, I think games can be an incredible teaching and learning tool, and they're so... Uh, mm -hmm. They're so good at getting you to do something, even maybe something you don't want to do, like learn something. So uh, I find them to be incredibly uh, powerful motivators. And it's up to the game designer to kind of, you know, what are we going to motivate people to do? Uh, and what are we going to try to teach them to do through these games? So do you encounter, is there, a, where do you think we're at percentage of the population-wise who looks unfavorably about video games? Is there a lot of resistance there, <laughs> like not taken seriously as a thing? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I was going to say, like, it's very complex, right? So, uh, there's definitely, like, lately there was a thing called Gamergate that happened. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, you about that. Can you tell, I, I'm, it right. has something to do with, see, I can't, I thought I knew what it was until I tried to say it out loud. I'm going to let you <laughs> well, say Well, actually, I'm not much of an expert on it either, but when it, I mean, basically what happened is, uh, there was there was a girl who was um, making these videos where on YouTube where she was kind of critiquing video games for just the the gratuitous violence and uh -huh. sexism and stuff and then um, a certain subculture of gamers just exploded and these are like the worst types of gamers online who are are really really uh, violent and uh, abusive. Is that so, like the prototypical? Angry white no. dude in his ba in his mom's basement that's <laughs> a jerk and a loser, but he lashes out online and leaves comments and plays video games. Is it that, yeah, that, yeah. That guy? Well, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. That is a real thing, and that probably was most of Gamergate uh, was those types of people. But I don't really know. And actually, what did they do so when they lash out? They attack. They attack that girl or what lady? Um, yeah, I think they just you know they were. It started out as just comments, and then it turned into stalking, and you know finding her phone number and doing and hacking and mm -hmm. all sorts of like really bad stuff. So yeah, that was like, that was like a tragedy. And, uh, and obviously it, be it became such a big thing that it makes gaming culture look really bad. Uh -huh. But gaming culture is totally not like that. That's like a small minority. I would say, like you said, like most people in games are very progressive and hoping to do positive change. And people are very, at least in the, the world that I live in, which is like indie game worlds, uh, 
there's such an awareness of social issues and like an extreme level of sensitivity to people who are different and people who are trying to do different things. So Maybe game players and people like this as a fringe thing, or it started as a fringe thing, although I think it's going to become, I'm going to think it's going to fuse with the mainstream at some point, technologically at least, but at least it's a, an alternative thing. Or, or people that maybe were, let's say, classically nerds or marginalized to some degree. <laughs> so they're either, you know, there's a few people that may be bad eggs in there, but, a, a, you know, you usually see that in marginalized groups, how they kind of band together and are aware and care about stuff. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. So I mean, it's probably an like... open-minded group that under, that is ex- I bet it's very accepting, like come as you are in, in the gaming culture. It doesn't matter who you are. What uh, You know what I mean? It's, it's not social hierarchy. It's a smaller community of and they're they're pretty together at least yeah totally yeah i'd say so i mean i think there's like there's kind of like a big uh i mean games are everywhere now so it's hard to say who is a gamer and who is not it's like a very yeah. it's like a gradient because um, you know there's tons of people who play games on their phones but then there's people like the room i'm in who have like every single console and like a full vr setup you know it just depends on your level of passion basically yeah. And how much time you spend doing it? Do you have a problem with the? You, do you think there's uh, credence to that stuff about games being violent or that causing violence or being a problem? Uh, no, I don't think games cause violence necessarily. Grand Theft Auto t- makes you go become a drug dealer, you know that kind of thing. No, I don't think so. I know tons <laughs> of people who play Grand Theft Auto yeah. and are not drug dealers. Uh. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I played crazy violent games, you know. I, w- I remember I bought Resident Evil 2, and my dad was worried about it. And uh, eventually he let me buy it, and I played it, and I'm not going around shooting zombies. So. <laughs> um, you know, like, I-, I don't know. like, And I grew up playing Doom and Wolfenstein and mm-hmm. uh, Halo and all that stuff. Like, I mean, those games are just about shooting and... When you're playing the game, you're really thinking of it like a puzzle. How do I run around? How do I like strategically be in the right place and shoot this person at the right time? Yeah. And uh, as a gamer, you kind of become disconnected from the image, the fantasy. It becomes more about the strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which- strategy is a, is a big word for it, and it's problem-solving and strategy, which are big deals. Like they say some of the best political leaders and Cold War people and uh, things like that were... were they were like poker players and cards and strategists is is a thing yeah. that they were all really good at. They didn't have video games, but you can almost have imagined that some of the big, you know, when people talk about chess, it's like a chess match in a political thing or a negotiation or a business deal. Strategy is a is a big deal. It's problem solving, thinking on your feet. All those kinds of skills are, are possible to be there. And it wasn't that much when we were just playing Mario, but now I imagine that's probably the some of the most ripe place that attracts people that are good strategists for anything good problem solvers and thinkers and chess you know yeah. same as chess would have been looked at it chess is a game and you think the smartest people in the world play chess and then gamers are, are dummies or something so i think that that must be false like impression although like i said i'm still not a gamer but i just feel like we're going to reach a point and i think maybe once we get into vr and see it's actual real practical applications that it's just going to become the most mainstream thing possible. Yeah, I, I sort of feel like uh, games are the ultimate form of entertainment. That's why uh, before I was making more videos and films and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and uh, games just really seduce me as a as an art format because 
it's everything, you know, it's animation, it's storytelling, it's, it's fantasy, total but it's engagement. also... engagement, it's less passive than yeah. sitting watching the TV. Yeah, I yeah. mean, ultimately, I think there's a chance in the future to make games that are more like being inside a movie, but a movie where you're making decisions constantly, yeah. and you actually have meaningful results. That We still haven't really achieved that, like, storytelling in games is still relatively simple in terms of the player's interaction with it. Mm-hmm. So, well, I, but I do think like it's going to take over and it's going to be the ultimate thing eventually. So I believe that it will transcend entertainment really quickly and turn into purely learning and education and j- training. I think that mm. it, I think as soon as it becomes ultimate at entertainment, it will immediately it'll at that same moment completely unlock what I say training and learning education kind of stuff so if you think about it well think yeah. i think that's kind of happening already with it even is. stuff like podcasts and other things or even go all the way back to my kids watch baby einstein so yes tv we know tv's bad for kids which i don't believe but it's uh they're learning at least so it's like okay so they learn a nursery rhyme and they learn how to sing pitches and they learn the letters and that's that's all great now if you know, babysitter's better or you should be present with your kids i understand that but these things, these things are helpful technologies and app-based games to teach my kids to do computer code. George has a couple of coding games, and oh, I, wow. I take that very seriously. I mean, she learns you do this, and this is the result. You put the arrow this direction, it'll make that guy move this way. It's, it, and it's built to train stuff like that. And that's, of course, not VR. It's just an iPad game. But it's obviously already fusing. And I think some of the best things in entertainment are a lot of times now fused with history, like Hardcore History, the podcast, or Drunk History, the TV show. People would not want to watch a TV show that was just people getting drunk, but it's drunk history. So you got a smart professor gets drunk for entertainment value and then tells you about Abraham Lincoln. That's, you know, we're blurring <laughs> those lines re- really quickly. I think there's yeah. something rewarding about being entertained while you're being educated. But I, I think VR has just got to be, I can't even imagine what you could do to train children when VR is a totally integrated technology. Yeah, like I'm. I was just thinking about how I learned Japanese just a couple of years ago, and mm. I I actually tried in college to learn Japanese in a traditional like classroom, yeah. and my teacher was really good. But even so, I gave up after like three months. I was like, this is just too hard. This is so boring. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, I found this like online kind of textbook, and I also found like a like a sort of gamified learning thing. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible, and I was learning like so fast, and it got me over that hinge of like, oh, I can actually do this, yeah. and this is fun. Um, so yeah, I think like using video games to teach will just be an incredible thing in the future, and I'm surprised there's not more of it in school already. Well, people like <laughs> to know? say, oh, screens are bad for kids, or as if that's not. And in fact, there's a study came out recently. They used to say kids shouldn't look at screens until they're two and now they've even backed off on that and said nah you know that like nobody wants you to substitute (laughs) parenting for an ipad understood but beyond that there's nothing inherently bad about that technology Uh, and people will make counter arguments to that to be sure but it's uh i put it this way it's freaking inevitable so at least that's what the future is going to be like and i don't know where you know i don't know where screens go for into projecting or you know visual interfaces to our right into our optic nerve. I don't I don't know what the but there's no it seems to me no point in resisting the technolo- technology and VR and stuff like that. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of inevitable. <laughs> uh I mean, I'm not an expert on child development or anything, but I know when I was a kid, I was using my dad's Mac and that's how I learned how to read. Mm-hmm. So, 
there was this little bunny that like taught me how to read and I learned like really fast. And so you were in the was... first generation that that's ever happened to, which is <sighs> astonishing because when I was little, we did not. That didn't exist. And when you were little, your wow. dad had a Mac computer with uh, Mavis Beacon teaches typing or whatever that you know those kinds of things. Like that <laughs> came out when I was in high school and stuff. There were there were computers that you maybe kind of could use, but you guys grew up with it. And I think that's obviously going to change the world. But can you imagine what? Uh, <laughs> can you even imagine once we get into the real technical child development stuff and learn more about the brain itself and how it works? How, what will you'll be able to do with immersive sensory technology like VR? Like if you could put on a mask, the VR helmet onto uh, say a baby that's six months old, and, and you do it. <laughs> I don't for, know about that. Well, well, just think of whatever the technology is like that. What if we understood enough about the brain and its impulses? Like right now, they mm. tell my daughter, they say, make sure she crawls before she walks. That's how she learns her hand-eye coordination. Blah blah blah. So imagine in the future. I'm not talking about and. This is like a, a, a supreme hack, I think, is what's going to go on, is we talk about genetic editing and modification at that level and all these other things we're going to do in the future of humanity. But simply, if you understand the brain enough more, understand coordination and child development on a higher level, which is certainly what we're doing, and then program stuff like that into technology, you would be able to put on a mask on a six-month-old that's learning to crawl and give it feedback, response, goals-oriented stuff, and you're going to take... Mm. and you, Same thing with music. You, you have it like repeat this pitch, you get a treat, the thing you like that it's understanding that makes you smile happens every time you make a verbal sound in the right direction. You know, stimulus, response, programming things that would just, they'd be silly, but it would work. And if we understand understood that super well, we'll have child development on a level that you could not even imagine. At which point, I would suggest it, you it'll be completely irresistible. So if you have kids going into mm -hmm. kindergarten that are 10 times ahead because they've been wearing VR headsets for 45 minutes a day <laughs> from the age of six months, they may have the best hand-eye coordination and uh, memory and pitch uh, awareness and all these things that could be probably programmed in during the, the most prominent years of child development because we know that those are the, the most plastic moldable years, but we don't know exactly what happens in the brain. And if I get her to do this, this will happen and this will happen. But with enough data, big data testing and technology, then clearly I think that's the only – it'll be completely irresistible. You won't let your kid yeah. be the dummy that doesn't have the, you know, the hand-eye coordination <laughs> and music patch programmed into them at, <laughs> before they're one year old. Yeah, I could totally see that happening. I feel like – that will be possible in not too long. But um, people will resist and, it for sure. Yeah, yeah. At but, first. Uh, yeah. But I mean, like you said, if it's like if your neighbor's kid has this like total advantage, yeah, you're gonna be like, Oh, like, why wouldn't I do that? You know? Yeah, or if we so, outlaw it and China doesn't, what do you think happens? You know? It's just irresistible. <laughs> we won't be you won't be able to outlaw it. I think the uh, the crazy thing, thinking about that kind of stuff and connecting it with like brain interfaces, mm -hmm. which are being worked on really heavily right now. Like Elon Musk just started a company called Neuralink, and mm -hmm. they're working on direct brain interfaces. And it's it's obviously an investment in the future because it's not here yet, uh, at least in like a high fidelity. You know, like sure. there's there's really basic brain sensor headsets that exist now, but they're really not very good. It's like if you meditate and calm down enough, it will like affect a ball on a screen going up and down. You know, that's like not that interesting, but I think in, in not Step too long, long it'll start. Yeah, it's it's kind of the first step, but like 
it's going to get more and more high fidelity to the point where we can start to detect more basic things like emotion and kind of basic thoughts. So like that's, that's where it gets really crazy because if you could put that on a baby and like see how they're developing in real time and then the software is like constantly updating and changing to how their brain is forming, like uh, that would be insane. Um, but yeah, it's still kind of a long ways out. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, of course, but I mean, you never know how think how fast those things will go. But, you know, you could immediately do VR training. Is there, what is the education? Do you know if, of any education-based VR stuff that's happening now? Like, just teach you to shoot yeah. free throws. I mean, you could do that virtually, or, or golf swing. I mean, anything. I mean, I don't know. Well, I know there's, like, medical, like, like there's lots of startups who are getting funding to do medical training medical, in VR. Medical, that'd be the other huge one. Yeah, like training a doctor do how that? to do surgery. Well, it's just so accurate. Like, the hand tracking that we have now with VR you know, with a Vive, which looks like this, uh-huh. um, it's just so, it's so perfect to simulate like a tool in virtual reality. So if you want to have like a scalpel and you want to simulate that and teach a doctor how to do surgery, like it's really good for that. Would it go um, so far to where you could have a doctor in Singapore that was really good drone surgery on me in Seattle? Yeah. I like think where he, like he was, he was like wearing the mask and had hand tracking and he was, just sitting in his lab in Singapore and see, like, in real time, robotic arms are slicing me open and he's controlling <laughs> them like a drone or something. Not a drone yeah. itself, but, like, that remote thing. It totally, I think that's already happening. Oh, my At least I've, I've seen that tech. Uh, I know it exists, so, yeah. So then that guy can just be market value if he's the best surgeon in the world. If you can afford it, <laughs> you don't have to go to Singapore or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, even better than that, and I, I think this is seriously not that far away, it's, uh, you know, putting that doctor under analysis and from a neural network, and the neural network watches them do, like, 100 surgeries. Oh, and then after that, the neural network knows how to adapt to all those potential situations that a doctor would run oh, into. No. Oh, boy. And then if you have a robotic arm that's, you know, precise oh, enough... Wait uh, a second. It, so yeah. if that's true... Then, I mean, but not even AI. AI would be a whole nother thing, but even just m- total mechanical. Okay, so think about the uh, the thing that makes your camera not shake, like anti-vibration stuff on a camera. Yeah. yeah, if, yeah. Could you, you could enhance a person's steadiness and precision mechanically, where you VR to them, and then there'd be robot arms even sitting right beside them that wouldn't even wiggle their tolerances would be even less and more precise. So you're controlling it with your hands and brain and it'd be like auto-tune is for your voice, you know? Like you sing <laughs> close and it knows what you were trying to do and can fix it. And so yeah. maybe you could even do that with precision-based things in surgery. Like yeah. make exact cuts based on what you're already doing, just knowing what you were trying to do and reading your brain and, and making the corrections on the fly to make you superhuman as a surgeon. And Like another thing that's really cool too is like, uh, like, you know how in Photoshop you could zoom in on, like, a couple little pixels and then your uh-huh. arm movement, which is like this, becomes like this, you know, in yep. pixel world. So you could do the same thing for physical actions. Like, you zoom in on whatever vein or whatever, it's like this big, oh. but it's oh, this gosh. big. And then your arm movements are like this, but it's actually only moving at Oh, uh, man. Okay, so you, you know, did some of that like visual. That. Let me see if I can explain that. You're totally right. So let's say you're working on a small tiny vein behind a vertebrae or something and it, it and you could you know you're you're really trying to cut basically a quarter of a millimeter like incision yeah. but you could in your VR 
zoom in really, really far. It'd just be huge. Yeah, and yeah. then your then your one inch steady movement that you're able to make with your hand translates to the zoomed in quarter of a millimeter movement with precision and accuracy that you you could never achieve. Yeah. Oh my god. I, I I love thinking about that kind of stuff and like. It's the same for art tools in VR, too. Like, if you've tried any of the, like, tilt brush or anything like that, it's incredible the feeling of just scaling up everything and painting a little tiny area and then scaling it back down and looking at it from above. Yeah. Like, that's just such an incredible feeling. Um, and I'm really interested in making more tools, more creative tools like that. Oof. And that's so. satisfying to you probably because in, in all of our interfacing with technology and screens and things like that, we've always been aware of... That it had its limits. That, that you know, you could always see the pixels and TVs and things like that. So when they came out with Retina screen, it was like the first time. It was like, well, I, there's no more pixels. I mean, I don't yeah. see them. I mean, maybe you kind of even can see them. But it seemed like there's always been these steps all along. Of like, I know when we got a Sony TV in 1994, and big, still a big TV. You know, old technology, not even <laughs> HD. And I just was like, well, it looks wow. like we're there. They've done it. That's it. I'm right. It's no different than being at the football game. Here we go. It was just standard definition on a, a pretty decent TV in the 90s. And then HD, and you're like, oh, well, that, that's it. It's, it's no different. And then yeah. 4K comes down, you're like, oh, that HD shit was kind of blotchy. I get it. You know. So And now yeah. we've gone even so far into to those things and, and that uh, there's something really satisfying about technology that it's always been behind real life, but we're going to enter a time that's going to just unlock everything where it's actually better than reality. Like yeah. like when the resolution is so good that it is in, indistinguishable or even favorable to real life. Dude. Uh, that's scary, man. though. It's yeah. going to unlock everything. I, I keep thinking, I feel like we shouldn't waste this time. I really want to uh, just talk about like old memories from the farm and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do that too. I know it's kind of random. Yeah, do it. I like, want to hear what's in your head. <laughs> if you didn't catch the last episode, go back and listen to Stephen. Uh, we did it last Monday too. But I grew up, Stephen grew up as a teenager, fr friends with the people that we lived with when we were adults and they just first started doing Emory. So his band would rehearse in the basement of the house that we were living in. So we, I was around Stephen since he was 15, 16 years old, trying to do music and film and stuff like that. But what, we what were are your like, memories? We were like a sub band to Emory. Like we, were, <laughs> like we would open for their like really early shows. And I remember we always thought like Emory were just like, who are these guys? They were like a fully grown adults who moved to a farm in Seattle because they like Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of true. And they were like, and tooth and nail, and they were like, you know, we're going to... And at first, we all just thought you guys were not legit, you know. And I, I think it's funny looking back, because you guys totally became legit, and we definitely not did not. Not legit in, in what terms way? Of band. Not, not talented or not what? No, just like, uh, we just thought... I think at the time, we thought like, oh, they'll never, they'll never be a real band, you yeah. know. Like, But it turned out to be totally the opposite, and you guys just like launched, and it was awesome. Uh but yeah, like I, I think that's probably good encouragement for people listening who like have their own bands and are like, you know, maybe that maybe everyone thinks they're losers. <laughs> but they're totally not. <laughs> no, I mean I think and and that's true of all creative pursuits. Like everyone's gonna think you're lame at first, and you are gonna be lame at first, and it, you just have to keep pushing. 
until you become something awesome. Well, the thing uh, there that people get lost in is the narcissistic type of tendency to say there's haters and I know I'm good in my heart. And it's when I express <laughs> my myself heart. and do my creative stuff, I, in my heart, I know it's me and I know that's all that matters. That's not true. That is where I take strong exception. The only yeah, way that it. it works to be a loser and an untalented idiot is if if two things must happen. You have to continue until you gain skill, but you can do it for 10 years and gain no skill at all if, you're, if you lie to and deceive yourself and think you're better than you are. It's you must aggressively pursue the harsh reality of understanding how bad you are. That's what is required. If you do yeah. that for 10 years, you'll be good at anything. If you, That's you true. know what I'm saying? So it's okay to be bad at it, but it's not okay to excuse you're being bad at it or not recognize what you're bad at. Like I could play guitar and write stuff long before I could do it really well. And I knew, I knew that. So I knew at the same time that you thought we were losers that weren't any good, I would have, I could only have agreed with you. <laughs> and it was my agreement with that fact that knew that Seth was not good enough at drums or didn't learn this right or you need to work more on that or I needed to, I know my guitar's out of tune, it's driving me crazy or I wish I could play fast like that, but I can't. You know, so yeah. it's, it's, you know this guy's better than me. That's so clear. We opened for this band and they just blew us away and that is true and that they deserve all the credit in the world. We're not that good. Back to yeah. work. And it's like continuous self-improvement, yeah, right? Like but you if you're have not to be honest about that. It's yeah. brutal. But that's and not what just it, with yourself. Like you got to find other people who are peers who can like critique oh, you. Oh yeah, for sure. And you guys helped us in that way too. Like you know when we were when you so you actually like helped produce one of our first albums. Mm -hmm. And when you were when we were recording with you, we all got so much better because you were like, oh no, it's got to be like this. It's got to be better. Like you're fucking up here. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, I swore. I don't know that's if that's right. allowed on this. It's allowed. Yeah, it's fine. But, but yeah, like that really helped us become more professional and just playing shows constantly. And like, if you expose yourself to the public too, that's mm -hmm. the worst. Because if, if you play and you're like, you're jamming and you're like doing so, you think you're doing so well, the audience is like, mm -hmm. you have failed. So like learning how to get a reaction from the audience and how to engage them more directly. That was a process that I really enjoyed. Um, but yeah, dude, when we were on that farm, like... <laughs> Okay, so I was thinking about the chickens. <laughs> do you oh, remember boy. the chicken? <laughs> yeah, I do. You can tell it if you want to. Go ahead. <laughs> Are you, am I allowed yeah, to? Yeah, go ahead. If it's true, you can tell it. That's my part of the exercise <laughs> of me podcasting is I'm trying to be as real as I can and tell the truth as much as I can, and I'm allowed to have done things I'm embarrassed about and talk about it and move on. It's Break okay. it down. Break it down. It's all right. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, so what, so one time, uh, one of the band members, I don't remember who, one of their girlfriends at the time brought a bunch of baby chickens as a Cute present. little for, chickens. For some reason, for some reason, the chickens were brought to this yeah. farm yeah. that all these guys were living on and, uh, given to Emery as a present. <laughs> and Matt, I think, we having grown up, but. yeah, Matt having grown up on the farm was like, I don't want those. They may look cute now, but they're going to become evil, you know. Yeah. And I was like, "What are you talking about? They're so cute." Mm -hmm. And the guy who received them was like, I think it was Josh, it was. was like, 
oh, these are great. We got to keep them. We got to raise them. This is amazing. We have, we have been given the gift of life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true so, so far. Sure enough, after like two, I swear it was like two weeks later, they were just full on adult chickens. It happened really fast from my perspective. And, and Matt was right. Adult chickens are horrible. They're like evil beasts yeah, run around and just like make noise or something and just, poop. Yeah. If they didn't have yeah. feathers, they would just be scary, horrible. Rep- you know what I mean? Like they're, <laughs> yeah. I don't like them one bit. They do horrible things. All they would do is walk around and climb on everything and shit everywhere. They would get into our practice space and shit <laughs> where our amps and guitars were and get in the house. I mean, we had like, you know, garage, we lived in a not the ideal place, but still. There was probably chicken poop inside yeah. the drums. <laughs> right. I didn't so you like hit it. the drums. This <laughs> is chicken poop everywhere. Uh, yeah. So one day, Matt was like, "I don't know why, but you decided that you would catch a chicken and cut its head off." Well, that you, I, you know, I will try to correct as much as I can. I'm pretty sure that's what we all wanted to do. We said, "Josh, you get rid of these chickens, or we're going to get rid of them. We're going to kill them. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we have to get rid of these chickens. They must go." And uh, so I believe that would have been a group decision. If I, and and then Joel, I think and I don't think anybody decision. would have done it. I don't think I would have done it. I'm certain I wouldn't have done it. But uh, Joel said, "I'll do it. I'll chop that chicken's head off." So. <laughs> and he did. Yeah, <laughs> he did. And it was. I mean, it sounds. Wait, wait. Before uh, before that happened, though. So you had to catch the chicken. Yeah, that and part this was. Turn- the best. Yeah, it's really hard. It's just yeah. like Zelda for anybody who's played Zelda and has run around and catch, you know, chasing the chicken is actually really hard. It's even harder than it is in Zelda. Yeah. Like yeah. we were literally chasing after it for like two it hours. It was so much fun. That was the part of the story that was just beautiful. It was just so fun and funny and pure. It was like chasing the chicken or whatever. And then when we did, we did catch it. it yeah, but I, I will say whatever happened next, it the mood shifted immediately when it happened. When Joel cut the head off of that chicken and it was like, oh no, he did that. Like we immediately all turned. It was like a, an exercise That's in mob mentality because it was like, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. And then as soon as Joel did it, we we're like, Joel, you did that. You're bad, man. I can't believe you did that. You're okay, <laughs> so that's true. For a moment, the mood changed and it was like, oh shit, like we killed yeah. a living being. Yeah. But we eat chicken bad. every day. Mm-hmm. Okay. So maybe it's important that we had this lesson, like, oh, that's what it's actually like. And, but I think what's hilarious, I'll always remember this, is after, after that, there was a chicken body yep. that was disconnected from the head. And I don't know if it's you or Josh, but somebody decided to kick the chicken one time. <laughs> oh, man. And its body went. It actually yeah. made that sound because, mm-hmm. like, the sound comes through the neck when you like kick the body. It goes. Yeah. It sounds like a chicken like making its sound, and uh, I know that there was some soccer happening with the chicken body. That was it. Was fascinating. That's all I'll say about <laughs> was, that. So it changed from somber to pretty comical again. Yeah, I went back to comical after that. But I and told then, that story before, and I just like it seemed normal <laughs> at the time, and then when I've told the story. It's usually met with horror to other people, which I now understand that's not. I, just, yeah, no. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what else you can do, but 
you know, I, I have a weird relationship with that, with animals. I can't ever get a grip on it because it really confuses me how to judge animal life or something. Because like uh, my wife was, we have all these slugs in our garden. If this shows you if I've changed any over the years, I hopefully get a little credit. But she got, she made me get the snail <laughs> bait poison. And I was just looking no, at no. all the pest control stuff at Fred Meyer. And I was like, gosh, this is so morbid. It's just like she wanted, we had like, she had like 20 snails in her garden. And there was just the stuff that just kills them. I'm just like, can't you just move the snails? I don't want, I just don't want to do that. So I got a bucket and I just grabbed all the snails and went and dumped them, you know, a block away. I just didn't want to, I mean, they're just snails. I, there's no way they know anything or think anything or it matters, but it bothers me on some level now that I don't, I don't really know. And it's weird because, that's good. You've developed empathy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it, I don't even know if I should. I feel stupid about that. Like it's, I mean, if that's true, here's the problem I have with it. It's, it, it messes with your brain because if I actually care about a slug and I've said that and that's true, well, that that essentially would ruin my life if it was true because of the amount of animal bug deaths. Not to mention the amount of actual horror that's happening to humans and people in my neighborhood and down the street and. Oh yeah, in other countries. Like if, if I'm actually going to spend ten minutes on some snails, then how am I supposed to deal with Syria and the people over there? Just put them out of my mind and keep working with the slugs. Well, you know what I mean? What about the yeah. pigs at the slaughterhouse? I don't know. Any? I just don't. It's like you just can't. It, it, my logic tells me you cannot worry about little stuff like that. But then where would it be? And if I do, it just seems so silly. But my emotional response is, let me see if I can't carry that spider outside first. I don't know if that's a good impulse or bad. <laughs> no, I think it's good. I mean, it it does reflect like who you are and what your your sort of human empathy ability. Yeah. Like they say, people who torture torture animals in their youth are more likely to like murder people oh, for in sure. their adulthood. Yeah, I can see why, but uh, not that that causes it. It's just a you know, it's a sign, of course, of of somebody that you know. If you if you're pl- messing yeah. around with animals, you probably would do that on humans already. You just can't. You don't have the opportunity. You know what I'm saying? Well, I don't know if it's true. You know, like like Toy Story. Uh, there's that kid and or Andy's neighbor. I can't remember his name, mm-hmm. Sid or something. He he like tortures toys, right? Yeah. And it's I'm sure Sid grew up to be like relatively normal human, and it, I think it's true for a lot of us. Like like I remember me and Kyle, we used to just like burn toys. We loved burning <laughs> yeah. toys. Like yeah. I remember we hated rollerblades so much because we were skateboarders that we, fruity we boots. lit some yeah fr- we lit some fruit boots on fire. Just so we could ollie over them, you know. Like <laughs> we did, we did crazy stuff like that, and like I don't know. I think we're fine, but uh, yeah, I don't think. I think it's sort of like video games. It's not really representative of who you are as an adult. But I think when you're a kid, you don't have, you have not developed, or or a young adult, like you have not fully developed that part of your brain that has That's empathy true. for Some other people it, yeah. and creatures. You know, like. I think a, a lot of bullying happens in high school for that reason. Like that same person as an adult will totally regret that and like change and like That's respect true. other people. But in high school, it's like this this tumultuous environment, and your brain isn't fully developed and blah blah blah. So well, like it's I, not that unlike chickens. I've seen and when you talk about chickens being evil, I've seen it before. Where and it's, it must just be <laughs> kind of wired into humanity. But it reminds me of the same exact thing. Like I, I've seen chickens before where they're all sitting around happy clucking, doing whatever. And one chicken, my friend pushed it or messed with it or something, and it fell off of where it was. It was probably four feet off the ground, and it fell to the ground. And it was obviously hurt. 
um, oh, no. by that fall. Oh, no. And all the other chickens looked at it and said, let's get it. And they immediately all went and killed it. I've seen chickens no. do that. That's what I'm saying. That, that's what they do. It's like, it's not that different and it's horrible, but it's part of, I guess, survival of the fittest or selection or I don't know. There's something wired in there. And you see children are not that different. They don't kill. We're not, they're not violent typically in a group, but they're mean as shit to whatever, whoever the weakest kid is in the room. It's just if there's a kid with a deformity or disability or even just one that seems socially lower than the other kids, the rest of the kids will smell that and just go after that one. That's what, you know, being picked on is, you know, kind of thing. And it may be led by one person, but the group follows that kind of a thing. So that's part, kids can be horrible. I, I'm seeing my, you know, even four-year-olds like my daughter, they, they smell weakness and get, get after it, you know. It's crazy. <laughs> Your daughter, can you give me an example? No, well, yeah, they're just, happened? like if one kid in the class at, at her preschool says something mean to another kid and then somebody else laughs at it, they all just think, do that. Oh, it's right. funny. We yeah. like it. They don't think that it hurts that kid's feeling. They don't, that's not even the point, but they're attracted to hierarchy, uh, preying on weakness is easy and fun and feels effective. Like if you divorce that from empathy or anything or just any kind of morality or whatever, then it just, it seems natural. It's like, it's just, it's a destructive behavior maybe, but it's at least engaging and fun and seems to make sense to everybody. So they just do it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's the lizard part of our brain mm -hmm. in action. It's just like, yeah the raw kind of yeah. do that kind of thing, survival of the fittest, but it's like a higher parts of our brain that like ca are capable of empathy. But empathy takes some effort, you know? Yeah, like, but it's more than just empathy. It's also more just like the dis we're, pat we're at a point where our society is one that we've decided to do many things for good that are against our nature. So that's always going to be hard. So there's things in our nature that uh, sexually, for instance, I mean, you you're typical sexual desires to have sex with many, many people. And we've decided to not do that. But we, you can't really say that that's not biologically in there. You just say, we've decided a better way. Um, we're typically defensive and violent and stuff too, but we decided we don't want to have a violent society. But of course, violence comes natural. We understand that, you know? So we've decided, it's not even anything other than we've all decided together for good reason that we don't want to engage in a bunch of behaviors that we must at least acknowledge we're designed to do naturally or our structures and biology at least want us to do that. Yeah. How, however you think. So that's why, you know, it's it, it's just weird to me to not acknowledge that some of our deep drives that we have at least. But those <laughs> things are in there, I think. Yeah. We've just decided Dude, we're going to coach ourselves <laughs> out of it, and that's a good thing. It's, it's But it's hard work, and it requires the, the upper parts of your brain to do. Yeah. This reminds me of of just, like, hanging out at the farmhouse. And I remember you guys had all the bunk beds. And we used to just talk until, like, 4 a.m. And you would just philosophize exactly <laughs> like this. This show is exactly that. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> and you and Toby together just going off. I, I can see why you have, like, a talk show now. Yeah. Because it's totally... It's exactly what you guys naturally do, like, 90% of the time. I, I I don't see how it's what everybody doesn't do. It seems quite natural to me. But yeah, that, I mean that's I think some of the best stuff is just getting around people, where you get comfortable enough to be able to say whatever, and then just see where it goes, kind of thing. Like that's a fun <laughs> that's a fun thing to do. I don't know what's more fun than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I was just imagining like me and Ryan and Kyle if we tried to do the same thing, <laughs> what would happen? 
Uh, it would first of all it'd be hard to get Ryan to talk. Yeah. Uh, but Kyle would do incredible. I think. I hope Kyle's listening to this. We should get him to watch this. Yeah, he might. He might. I don't know if he is or not. But the you know, I wonder though if. Like something that occurs to me is my style of being. I suppose it's an extreme or a very forward, you know, extroverted kind of thing. So I, it's hard for me to imagine other people don't like doing, for instance, what I like doing. That's always been a struggle yeah. for me to understand. If I like something, how other people don't like it? You know, it's it's hard for me to understand people not being like me. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's something. But I, I've but had to I learn. clearly know most people <laughs> are not like me. So that's there's there's the tension, you know. Yeah, I think we're we're pretty weird people. Like, I think we're both people who have pursued crazy dreams and ideas uh, that most people would never risk, and we've been willing to take the risk mm-hmm. to the maximum. You know, for me, it's like continuous. I'm always I'm on this loop of like, uh, okay, I'm, I've got this idea, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. I don't care about money or anything. It's all about making this idea. Then I achieve that idea, and then it's like it's either successful or it's not. And then I start over again and I take all the maximum risk to do the next thing. Yeah. That is extreme, but I would say the people, the one group that at least has you beat would be gamblers. Gamblers have that impulse (laughs) to the most. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) that's true. That's true. Uh, well, hopefully, uh, the things I'm doing have more effect positive. Yeah, of course, of course. Effect on the world. I would hope so. Anyways, uh, but yeah, I think like like you have to pursue high risk, high reward if if you want well, anything special. Yeah, you know? but you don't have to be high risk. What you're trying to do is find the lowest risk that has high potential reward. You don't necessarily want high risk. You want acceptable risk for possible high reward is what you're really looking for. Like you don't That's true. look yeah. for more risk. That's not the idea. It's just you want to be the person <laughs> that recognizes the risk is not exactly what all the other scared people think it is. So I'm always looking yeah. for, you know what? That's actually not that risky. It's, but it's enough to scare off other people. Thus is born my opportunity <laughs> is the way I think of it. Yeah. Like moving to Seattle, that- start a band. It's not, I mean, it's risky, but not in any real way. Was it risky? Run out of money, go home. Call your dad. What, what's, the, what's the worst that can happen? But most people yeah. wouldn't move across the country and start a band and leave everybody. That you know, but it's just not that risky. I always said, well, you can we can go home. But I know that's enough to, that other people don't do it. Then we got to Seattle and we could spend unlimited, uninterrupted time on what we wanted to writing music. So to me, that's a very low risk, high possible reward, and it worked. Yeah, that's true. That's amazing, man. I mean, it, I never thought about that that you guys could just go home, but. <laughs> I think it's also incredible that like you got all of your you guys all together kind of bonded and were able to do that together like mm-hmm. convince each other like it's all that's a good right. idea let's do this at the same yes. time. That's, that's totally That's right. really lucky. I think like the risk or like not that, not the risk but like the fact that you guys were all at the same level in the same place in life to where you could all kind of do that, you yeah. know. That happens like that. on so many occasions where there's been a thing like, I, like you know when you're like, I dare you to jump over that campfire. You won't do it. Yes, I will. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then you just do it. If you take that, that's what I've always tried to ha- incubate things like that where you get a bunch of people, except for instead of jumping over fires, like I'll quit my job and go on tour. I'll do everything. I'll put, you know, I'll move to Seattle. You know, you get that mentality going for productivity. Like you, you know, we did stuff like that where we were going to move into an apartment. We decided let's save all the money from the, that and move into the, racing trailer and just drive to venues and record labels 
And so I said, I'll do it. If you'll do it, I, you won't do it. I will. Okay. And then me and Toby get wound up about it and then go tell Dev. And he's like, okay. Because we're now we're already convinced of some crazy <laughs> idea. And then you just bring people along and you just keep on going. <laughs> That's incredible, man. That's something I've really struggled with is like, a lot of the projects I've done have been ultimately kind of solo efforts where yeah. I'm just pushing yeah, I'm not so hard. And sometimes it just ends up being me in a room like by myself just grinding on something to finish it. And it's been like that with a few music videos. And now it's like that with this game again. Uh, and that's something I, I still haven't unlocked the secret to that. Uh, it's hard to get other people to believe in your dreams. Yeah. I, th- I think you have to you have to sort of either make it their dream or make it like a universally loved thing. You know, mm-hmm. like yes. Steve Jobs is just like so good at like taking what seemed like his dream and making it like so important to the world in the minds of the people around him. Like you're not just making this thing. You're making this thing that is going to like yeah. positively change the world, right? Mm-hmm. And then now it's like a cliche, like we're doing this to make the world a better place. It's like a startup cliche, uh, and it's you can't say that anymore because it's a cliche. But it's ultimately it's like what you should be doing, right? Like you should be doing something that's trying to affect the world positively. You know? Yeah. I mean, if you guys, that's what I'm saying. We're not risking whether or not we actually have food to eat, or if somebody's going to not allow us into the ER if we're sick. So we're in a free <laughs> enough place to yeah. It seems reasonable to try to impact your small culture, local whatever it is positive it seems reasonable once our basic needs are kind of met for the most part at least mine are so you know and that's not necessarily true for everybody and certainly not globally but it's like if you have privilege okay now now use it (laughs) it's kind of way i look at it at least yeah sometimes it's hard to justify art in that way though you know like is is me making a painting or making a song or making a game is that actually making the world a better well, place, or is that just something I feel like I need to do? Yeah, that's true, but you can't, if you take that the other way too far, then you get immediately lost, because then you would have to play this reductive game of, well, what is the most total good? And then everybody work on that, and that's not real. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's you, you, true. You couldn't put, you can't put all efforts of it. It's, it's, it's like where Christianity seems to mess up with me with evangelism or getting people converted. Like, if you set that as the only thing that matters, the most important thing, then you've lost everything else to some degree or over leveraged toward that or something. Like, yeah, we could, I mean, it's hard to make that argument though, but if you really say, I want to make the world a better place, it's just, it's impossible to name what exactly that would be or how many people or what resources should go into it, whether it be bed nets in Africa or stopping climate change or equality. And I mean, if you do that, well, let's, oh, let's put, let's end this, all this racism equality talk here and let's all work on saving lives from malaria. That doesn't make sense. So you at least need to do both, and of course, we, we, you need art and other, other all this other stuff too. So you just got to do the best, and you won't be effective if it's not something you're really motivated and driven for. So that should solve some of it too. You shouldn't feel guilty about what your drives are most of the time. Yeah, that's true. I think people sort of naturally go to the place they need to be to provide value for you're everybody. You're going to be else, most right? effective at what you're most motivated to do. You know permitting that it's a valid thing or a productive I mean positive thing at least at least if it's not negative I mean somebody wants to do bad stuff or go be greedy or make money or hurt people well yeah maybe not that but if you have a drive to do something that's at least remotely positive like create something I think that's tons of things and I I would say just from seeing music 
happen, it's like, wow, there's careers and all this economy generated out of creativity. That's one thing that's still better, you know, maybe more forward thinking than at least manufacturing and stuff like that is. I'm not saying it's bad, but it still, it does create jobs and economic growth that lift people out of poverty. I'm not, not claiming music lifts people out of poverty directly, but there is a through line there to, you know, if Emory, for instance, sold half a million records. Now, what if those were sold at $10 each and every concert ticket? I mean, there's millions of dollars have been generated by Emory. Now, they didn't go in my pocket, but people paid each other. People <laughs> had jobs. Yeah. People had things to go to. It, you know, the, the whole thing goes around and around, and it could have just not existed. So there's a positive sure. outcome of that because wealth is one of the best things that helps people, you know, move up in life is to be able to have more stuff so economic growth itself is is maybe arguably one of the most best ways to help you, you know anything is economic growth this, this kind of reminds me of the future of uh i i think it's not too long before like a lot of people start losing jobs due to technology right. and ai and you know automatic cars and all that stuff um so i think in the future like people will have to decide they won't have they won't need a job because Resources will be taken care of. They'll have food. They'll have, you know, whatever. Uh, it'll be either cheap, extremely cheap, or completely free mm-hmm. for all that kind of stuff. Like your basic needs will be met. So it'll be up to everyone to decide how do I provide value to the world? Because right. that's all a job is, right? Like you're providing value somehow to someone else, it's and they're a, giving you money. It's a crazy question that I, we could talk about another time. I know you got to go, but <laughs> it would be a crazy yeah. question if. You didn't need to work. What would you do? And for a lot of people, that would I would suggest it would actually be horrifying. Like they'd think, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that. I think that actually would be its own problem. It's like, yeah, no, don't don't worry about it. You're yeah. good on needs. Do you want to do anything? And their answer will be no. A lot of people's answer no. will not have a good. A lot of people will not have a strong motivation in a direction, yeah. and that'll be a sad people. They'll be their needs will be met, and they still won't have anything they want to do other than maybe still be a consumer entertained or something, but go on vacation it, or whatever. But I think people will do it automatically. I, I think so. it's so built into us to to find a, a purpose that people will search and they will find ways to provide value to each other, you know? I hope so. We'll see. <laughs> but you're I'm right. Not as optimistic for like... a lot of people. A lot of people seem like pretty <laughs> lazy. Not, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but not don't have a lot of drives, you know? Like, if you gave them more money, they would just sit at home. I think a lot of that is cultural programming. Uh, I think, I seriously, a lot of that is just what's expected of them from the world around them. Yep. And the pa- like, a lot of people just follow the patterns of those around them. Yep. So most people, I've yeah. really, Yeah, I've really, like, living in Japan kind of showed me that. Like, people do such weird things there sometimes. They seem really weird to you because you're from another culture and you have a different set of code like running in your head. Mm-hmm. I think of it as code because I'm a programmer, but it's just patterns. It's like behavioral yeah. patterns. And you go there and it's like, wait, why is it like that? Why do people sit in their room and like make plastic models? <laughs> or like, why are they so diligently doing something like that? And it's just a different type of expectation from the world around them. And I th- I think if you change that, if you change culture and you change those patterns, then essentially you've changed people. So, like, that will happen. No, if, that's that's if, that's good, and it gives even more credence to what you were saying about why is it good to create art? Because we, again, instead of freaking political policy, culture is changed more so by its art and entertainment and those things. So, if we want to shape culture, then good, do that. Yeah, that's one thing that drives me for sure, and gaming culture to some extent. If you can. 
you can change the way people play games and you can make games uh, healthy. Mm-hmm. That's something I really emphasize when I'm designing games is making them healthy, making them improve people's lives instead of being like a drain that sucks time and money out yep, of them. Absolutely. But something that like boosts them up is, is something I'm really passionate about. Good. Well, Edwan, thank you. <laughs> is that how you say Edwan? Yeah. I know you're used to calling me Steven. Yeah, I'm used to calling you Steven, but Edwan's catchy and it's cool looking and your website's great and everything else. So um, check out everything that Edwan is doing. And I forgot your website again. Sorry, say it again. It's Edwan (laughs) Uh, something. There's edwan.tv, which is like my personal stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there's edwanstudio.com, which is my company. Uh, And I'm on YouTube and all that kind of stuff too. I make a lot of crazy videos. Yes, and I enjoy them very much and am happy for all the stuff that you're doing. And uh, yeah. Hey, one of my first videos was Matt Mows the Lawn. Remember yeah. that? Do you have it still? <laughs> yeah, I have it somewhere. It's not on YouTube, but I should put it up. Yeah, you should put it up. I'd like to see that just to remember what we looked like and what we were doing then. <laughs> all right, man. Is that it? Is that it for this here podcast? Yep, we're done. Thank you. Okay, cool. Thanks, man. Okay, talk to you soon, Stephen. Edwin. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a a three-times-a-week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.